0: Hello and welcome to part one in a series of videos that I'm putting out where I break down all the fights taking place at UFC on ESPN plus 12. Now, if every single video that I put out for this event gets 300 likes, I will do a bonus live stream video on fight day where I go through all the fights taking place on this event to try and find a decent value prop bet on every single one of the fights and if you don't know what a prop bet is a prop bet would just be a highly specific bet for example Renato De Mo- Renato Moicano to win by knockout or TKO. Now we've been doing pretty well on the prop bets since I, uh, since I started doing the live stream prop bet videos and the irony is that for last week's uh, prop bet video during the live stream I actually slated the prop bets and the odds on the prop bets that were available I just said that you know the odds available were completely shit and that you would be much better off sticking to our solid bets for this event our straight bets and that would give you a much better chance of making a profit so even though I was giving out prop bets for all the fights at UFC 238 last weekend uh, I was just basically saying the props are rubbish they're probably going to make a loss only bet them for fun and if you just stick to our regular pre-fight bets the big money line bets you should make a profit and then what happened we ended up taking a small loss on those money line pre-fight bets and we made a decent profit on the prop bets so irony punched me right in the dick and if we look back at some of the props that we had for last weekend can't exactly remember which ones they were because the live stream was around about three or four hours long so please if i do make any mistakes don't hold a gun to my head but i'm pretty sure we had chukajan to win by decision I'm pretty sure we had Eddie Wineland to win by knockout at TKO. Pretty sure we had Jan to win by decision. Pretty sure we had Ivanov to win by decision. And were there any more? I'm pretty sure we had Kater to win by knockout at TKO. So, yeah, we hit five out of the 12 or 13 props, which is a bloody good result. So, the props did very, very good last weekend, uh, despite me telling you uh, that they were going to be absolute shit. And, like I say, the irony was that we ended up taking a small loss on the bets that actually mattered, which now brings me on to the section of this video where we need to go back and take a look at our performance. Sorry, there was just a rather loud car that drove past. Uh, we'll take a look at our performance from last week on UFC 238 so unfortunately we did take a small loss last weekend of course our big anchor bet the bet that we felt really confident in was Calvin Cater to beat Ricardo Lamas I would have been very surprised if that bet lost so that kicked the night off with a decent profit for us it was a 2.1 unit profit but then obviously we took a one unit loss on Cerrone kept this small though because we knew that Cerrone was a risky bet and then also we lost in the main event uh took a two unit loss on marlon marais to take our total profit for the night down to 0.9 units uh, or minus 0.9 unit loss which you know, it's only a small loss, it's one of those things, but frustrating to take any kind of loss. I mean, with these bets, Kate showed up and did exactly what we expected him to do. He uh, he struggled with leg kicks early, but, you know, the best counter to a leg kick is a punch in the face. And we know Kate has got one of the best jabs in the featherweight division, so as soon as he found his range, he started to light up, and that was an easy winner. The fight between Donald Cerrone and Tony Ferguson, you know... It went as one could be expected you know it, it went really as as we identified it might go in our risk factors of course like i say there's no right or wrong uh in 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 betting on sports it makes me laugh when you know i lost the bet on donald cerrone and people are comment in in last week's video that I got it wrong when I quite clearly identified uh, that the path to victory for Ferguson was breaking Cerrone with volume and pressure and how did he win? Breaking Cerrone with volume and pressure. So like I say when it comes to fights there is no right or wrong all we can do is identify all the possible outcomes, assign probabilities to those outcomes then look at the odds to see if the risk is worth the reward and Ferguson looked absolutely spectacular in this fight. I mean Cerrone did pretty good in round one um i think it was really subjective how you scored the first round i think cerrone did more damage in the first round i think he landed the bigger the harder shots but ferguson definitely outstruck him in round one so the way you judged that first round pretty subjective you score it in favor of ferguson's volume or cerrone's power shots and damage then obviously huge momentum in the second uh, momentum swing in the second round ferguson really uh Really picked the pace up, found his range, got comfortable, settled into a rhythm and looked like an absolute world champion. I would even go as far as saying that was Tony Ferguson's best performance of his career which is incredible for him to bounce back and put in a performance like that. When you take into consideration all the personal issues that he's been dealing with outside the cage, to come in against one of the most dangerous opponents he's ever faced and be able to put in a, a performance like that was outstanding and... There were perhaps clues during fight week that Ferguson would bring this kind of performance to the table because I still stand by what I said in the breakdown video where... If Ferguson would have showed up and performed like he did against Pettis and Venata and Kevin Lee, I do think Donald Cerrone would have won. If you go back and watch those fights, what you'll notice is Ferguson just comes out really reckless and wild with his hands down low in the first round against all those guys and ended up eating really hard shots, getting rocked, dropped or wobbled, which is why I bet Cerrone is an underdog. But During last week's Fight Week interviews, Ferguson did say something very interesting which stuck with me and when he said it, I wasn't really sure what it was going to mean but he said that for the fight against Cerrone, he was going to be way more traditional and way more technical and not really use any of the craziness that had got him to the dance before and I mean there's two ways you can look at that you can you can look at it and think oh that's a good thing because you know by being more technical and fighting in a more traditional way you're less likely to to, to go and get caught with a bomb like you did against Vanata Lee or uh or who was the third guy that dropped him rocked him Vanata Lee my mind has gone blank, someone else, Vanata Lee, why can't I think, it was Vanata Lee, oh and Pettis, obviously in his last fight, Um, but then on the other hand, you think if he is going to try a different style, and be really uh, technical, and and fight in a more orthodox way, is Tony going to be as good, because you know, one of his strengths, one of the things that makes him so amazing, is the fact that he's just crazy, and you don't know what he's going to do next, so When fighters make comments like that, it's really important not to put too much weight on them because, you know, I don't know if you have this expression in the part of the world you live in, but in the UK, there's an expression that that goes something like, you know, you don't want paralysis by analysis, which is where you overanalyze something and then you end up just doing nothing. You know, it's very easy to do that in betting. You can de- you can always find reasons to place a bet and you can always find reasons not to place a bet. So even there were clues last week that Ferguson would come in and look very different based on the stuff that he was saying. At the same time, it could work both ways. And if you really wanted to find reasons not to place a bet, you could, you could find reasons for any bet and you'd end up paralysed and not placing any bets at all. So it's really important just to kind of just try and again gauge and see if the risk is worth the reward when you place a bet. And still, I think seronia at pretty good underdog odds was a very good bet. So I still think you would have stood a good chance of winning if Ferguson would have shown up like he did in the past against Pettis, Fanata, and Lee. But I truly think that Ferguson's performance last weekend was a real big compliment to Cerrone because he, he came out almost not respecting Venata, Lee or Pettis. And that's why he did almost lose those fights and get himself into a lot of trouble. But literally from the first second against Cerrone, he was very, uh, almost like, he was just on it. He was in his flow state from the very first second. You know, second, didn't get overly aggressive, didn't come forward with his hands low recklessly. He actually chose to fight Cerrone in kickboxing range, which was interesting. It's one of the reasons why he did struggle in round one, because Ferguson's at his best when he's pressuring people. But of course, when he is pressuring people, he's put himself, putting himself in a position to be hit and eat those big shots that have caused him problems in the past. So it was almost like he knew Soroni had those weapons to hurt him, and he wasn't gonna give Soroni a chance to do that. So he fought. he just he just started a little bit slower, but a little bit smarter. And I honestly think that if Ferguson fights like that from now on, if he abandons kind of like the the crazy, reckless, madman style that we've seen from him over the last few years. I think if he fights like he did against Cerrone uh, all the time, I think he's an absolute nightmare. I think he's got a legit chance of basically beating everyone and possibly even being the GOAT at £155 because he is a nightmare when he fights smart and uh, and i also noticed that he was in his post fight uh, even in his pre pre fight interviews leading up in fight week um i just noticed that he was like way friendlier to like media way calmer you know in the post fight interviews before he used to like uh, you know give biz Bing attitude and he used to kind of have a weird chip on his shoulder whereas he's way way more positive way friendlier in the post fight interviews Again, a different fighting style uh, against Cerrone that we haven't really seen from him before for a very long time. And, yeah, signs that, you know, all the trouble, all the adversity, all the problems Ferguson's faced outside of the cage looks like it may have helped him elevate things to the next level. So I am excited to see uh, what we get from Tony next. And obviously a brutal loss for Donald Cerrone, but... Ferguson's incredible we knew that going in nothing you can do about a loss like that all I will say and this is not complaining I'm not trying to bitch about a loss or anything and I'm not trying to take anything away from Tony Ferguson at all but whenever we have events I want to use the most recent events as like talking points and I'm going to talk a lot about something uh, in a minute uh, in relation to this event but I want to use uh, the most recent events, while the fights are still fresh in our mind, to like illustrate points. And please, just prom. I promise you, I would, I would be saying this even if I didn't have any money on on the table at all. I would be saying this even if I'd won money on Tony Ferguson. I just want to illustrate the point that MMA is a really, really stupid sport at the moment in terms of the overall rule set. I just find it very, very frustrating how fighters can be fouled and then they actually become the victim so for example when we see fighters poked in the eye nothing gets done about it unless it happens twice if you see fighters get kicked in the nuts nothing gets done about it unless it happens twice or fence grabs Which is really annoying because, you know, every single fighter in the UFC could open up with an eye poke and a a net shot and absolutely nothing would happen to them. And you guys know, if you've ever been poked directly in the eye or kicked full force in the nets, it takes a hell of a lot longer than five minutes to recover. And it just bugs me how... We so often see fouls change the course of a fight. I mean, there's that stat in Fightnomics. The fighters that get fouled in round one go on to lose 65% of the time. So it's documented it has a huge impact on the outcome of fights. And fighters are just too tough. To complain about it or tell the referee that they're impaired and i think the the nature of how this fight stopped between cerrone and ferguson was also really really annoying because cerrone took a really hard clean punch and a legal punch after the bell at the end of that second round which definitely impaired him definitely had an impact on the outcome of the fight but nothing was done about it so ferguson obviously punched cerrone it was difficult to see where the punch landed but it was kind of like the nose or the left side of his face which was the opposite side of the face to where his eyes swelled up. So after the the bell went in round 2 he took a clean hard punch to the face and then shortly after he blew his nose and because his nose was broken that first caused his eye to swell up and the fight was stopped as a result of that and Ferguson was acc- awarded the TKO win. And when Dan Mergliata came back into the octagon, because he was going to check the footage to see if the illegal strike that landed had any impact on the fight. Because if if the illegal strike that came after the bell had caused Tony Ferguson's eye to swell, it would have been ruled a disqualification win for Donald Cerrone, or at the very least... And no contest, but the correct uh, the correct ruling by the letter of the law would have been actually a, disqualific- a disqualification win for Don Cerrone, with Ferguson being DQ'd for the illegal strike that landed. Now, what's really really fucking annoying about that is that Donald Cerrone. If you go back and watch the replay, you could probably find it online, and partly Cerrone's fault as well. But when you see Cerrone eating big power shots in any of his fights, he's always quite light on his feet. He's always moving his head so that when he does hit a, sh- eat a big shot, it might land hard, but he's kind of rolling with it a little. When Ferguson landed this illegal shot, because it was coming right up to the end of the round... Cerrone kind of dropped his guard a little bit he went square he was standing square to Ferguson which you'd never see him do normally he'd be out in the orthodox stance he was also flat footed and his arms were down by his side so if you notice when Ferguson landed that illegal strike literally Cerrone was caught cold and his head snapped right back it was almost like when you see the punching bags the inflatable punching bags you give to a kid and you hit him and they're so flat that they just go bling and come straight back. So Cerrone ate a very hard, clean shot. and a illegal shot at the end of that second round. But it was to the opposite side of his face with his nose swell Or his nose. It was difficult to see from the camera angle. Now, because it la- didn't land on the eye, Dan Murgliotto was like, oh, it's okay. The fight's all over. Uh, it's a DK- TKO win for Ferguson. Because Cerrone blew his nose. And my issue with that is that Cerrone ate an illegal shot that led to the fight ending. And Murgliata said that, you know, it didn't cause the eye to swell. It was on the other other side of the face. But the annoying thing about this is, if you've literally just been punched full force in the face by a professional athlete, that you didn't expect the punch to come, you didn't see it coming... Your judgement is going to be a little bit off for a few minutes, you're going to be a little rocked, a little wobbled, a little hazy, you've just lost a round, you're a bit stressed out. So while I understand that the punch did not directly cause, the illegal punch did not directly cause Cerrone's eye to swell, it was an illegal strike which could have momentarily clouded Cerrone's judgement because he was a little bit rocked a little bit wobbled a little bit hurt and without thinking because he was hurt due to that illegal strike Knowing better. He just blew his blew his nose, which caused the eye to swell So indirectly the illegal strike could have led to the eye swelling So it's another example of where a fighter has been fouled and then they pay the price now I'm not bitching about it. I'm not sad about the loss I actually think that if the fight hadn't been stopped Ferguson would have just gone on and won anyway because he was looking phenomenal in the second round. This has nothing to do with the fact that I lost money. I really don't care. But I see this kind of thing happening in MMA all the time where fighters that get fouled turn out to be the victim and it just makes a mockery of the sport because at the end of the day, if you are fouled in basketball, you get free throws. If you are fouled in in ice hockey, you get a power play. If you are fouled in football, you get a penalty kick. Whereas if you get fouled in MMA, you know the sport where a foul means more than anything else because a a, a foul can impact the way you perform for the rest of the fight because you're hurt, nothing happens to you and I find that really strange that in 2019 you're still able to foul your opponent and actually benefit from being the person that, that committed the foul because then your opponent's impaired. So. I do think Cerrone was a little hard done by. I do think he probably should have got a disqualification win or a a no contest at the very least. I think that he took it like an absolute champ and didn't complain and felt guilty that he blew his nose when he should have known better. But at the same time, officials and rules should be there so that fighters don't have to make the call. Fighters don't have to say if they were impaired or not. You know, if you get kicked in the nuts you shouldn't have to tell the referee you're okay to continue fighting there should just be a penalty to the other person and uh and it's annoying and this was one of the more high profile uh examples recently that i can think of where i think the officials uh, really fucked up and I think that at the very least there should have been a no contest like I say Ferguson looked amazing not taking anything away from him I think he would have won I think he re- I think he probably would have finished Cerrone in the third round because the momentum swing was so big but at the same time um, the rules in MMA are just silly because fouls don't get penalised like they do in every other sport and then obviously we took a two unit loss on Marlon Marais as well what an amazing performance from Cejudo man you have got one in Cejudo, I pretty much thought that, I mean, Marais just picked Cejudo apart in the first round and looked amazing, and I really expected the whole fight to look like that first round, but I don't know what the hell happened, I think it must have just been Cejudo tried a few kind of half-assed takedown attempts in round one, and when the fight was standing, he was just getting picked apart. His leg was getting blasted to pieces. And I think when he went back to his corner at the end of round one, I think he just thought, like, I'm not going to take this that guy down. I'm not going to outstrike him in a kickboxing match. So I've just got to get after it and go after him. And honestly, I was I was just... When I saw Cejudo in round two start getting super aggressive and going after Marlon Marais... I was quite happy because I was like, "There's number one, there's no way Cejudo is going to be able to keep up this level of aggression without eating a bomb. Number two, there's no way the Cejudo is going to be able to keep up this pace and keep keep doing this. For the rest of the fight. And I think Marlon Moraes felt the same. If you go back and watch that second round. When Cejudo had him in the tie clinch. And he kept landing knees. And he was landing bombs. If you look. Every time that they broke from the tie clinch. And Moraes backed up against the cage. Moraes wasn't even breathing heavy. He was calm. He was relaxed. He was just totally chill. And I think he was just kind of letting Cejudo. Burn himself out. So that he could weather the storm. And then coming back into the fight in the third round. And if you go and watch the fight again. At the end of the second round. Mirai's is just looking chilled on his stool at the end of round two. Whereas Sohudo's like leaning back in his chair. Taking deep breaths. Like looking big time like he might have just adrenaline dumped. At that point I was thinking like fucking yes. Like basically what's happened here is. Cejudo has struggled bad in round one. Realised he had to get Mirai's out there in round two. Adrenaline dumped in round two. Trying to get Mirai's out of there. And didn't get a finish. And now Mirai's is going to come back out. And put it back on him in round three. How fucking wrong could you be? Cejudo again. Somehow. Olympic level heart. Olympic level fight IQ. Olympic level cardio. Comes out in round two. And fucking puts it on Mirai's again. And I was just like. Fucking hell man. You have gone in Cejudo. That guy is just incredible and I mean want to talk about uh I, again I'm not making excuses for losses just Cejudo improved immeasurably like that performance was absolutely outstanding I didn't see it coming Mariah certainly didn't see it coming I don't think anyone could have seen it coming just absolutely spectacular and uh and I don't see anyone at 135 pounds beating him when he can do that I mean just an absolute fucking beast. And uh, he's going to be a nightmare at £135. Pounds. So with that, that kind of brings me on to... So oh, one more thing I wanted to say. So we took a really small loss on this event. Minus 0.9 units is nothing really. But the thing that I want to point out, which is really, really cool, is that we've been crushing it this year. And the, the pre-fight betting results over the last 10 or so events are looking excellent. Because if you look at it, In the last 10 events, we've gone uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. So we've gone, on the last 10 events, we've made a profit on 7 of them and a loss on 3 of them. But the really cool thing is the events where we've taken a loss... The losses have been really small in comparison to the profits. We can see on the Barbosa Gaichi event, we only lost a unit. On the Dosanios versus Lee event, we only lost a unit. And then last weekend, Hudo Marais, we only lost 0.9 units. And you can see in comparison to the profits, we're putting in. You know, the profit on profitable nights far outweigh the losing nights. So it's all going good, man. Don't worry about a loss. You have to take a loss from time to time. Can't win them all. But this does bring me on to my next point because. A lot of people watch these videos and they just come here for picks and bets and that's cool. But a lot more people come here for, kind of like, uh, to learn about betting theory and different strategies that you can use to make money from betting. And what I've kind of decided to do from now on is, over the last few weeks, these videos have been getting longer and longer. and, uh, And a lot of people seem to enjoy that. The only people that don't seem to enjoy it... Are uh, people that just come for picks and stuff? But there are plenty of other guys on YouTube doing picks. So if you're just here for picks, you can go watch those guys. If you're here for uh, good quality, betting analysis, deep betting analysis, deep thought and deep discussions over betting strategy, that's the kind of content I want to be produ- producing and delivering. So I thought what I'm going to do from now on, I've kind of been doing a little bit about this over the last few weeks, I did a little bit of it on the Stockholm card and at the stage in these these videos where I review uh, our last week's results, what I'm also going to do, if I notice anything, uh, anything on the cards that we've all just watched, that I can use to make uh examples or illustrate important points about how to make money from betting and that's what I'm going to do because I think using recent events is very useful because the, the fights are still fresh in our mind so the again I really don't want this to be about our losses at all so please disregard our losses don't think I'm talking about this stuff in the context of the fact that we made a loss on this event but one thing that really really stood out to me on this card was that top to bottom completely across the board many of the fighters on this card put in significant improvements that could not have been predicted based on pre-fight research so every once in a while I like to set you guys homework So you can go away and watch fights and see things for yourself so that when you're listening to my betting analysis videos, you get more value from them because you can kind of appreciate what I'm talking about. Because I always make the point that there is no right or wrong in betting. That's why when people say, Oh, you are wrong Matt, about Malamarais, I was right about Henry Cejudo. It just grinds my gears because, again, there is no right or wrong in fighting. When two guys step into the cage to fight to the death, anything can happen. All you can do as a professional gambler, as a handicapper, as someone that likes to bet on MMA is to identify all possible outcomes, assign probabilities to those outcomes, then look at the odds to see if the risk is worth the reward. But the the, the, the difficulty with doing that is that when an athlete or anyone really reaches the highest level of anything in life the way that they've got to that highest level is by learning from their mistakes and constantly being on a journey of self-improvement over the last 10 years I have made so many mistakes, and I still make mistakes all the time, but I'm constantly learning from my mistakes and tightening up. The gambler that I am today is much better than the gambler I was last year, and the gambler I was five years and ten years ago. So that is what makes pre-fight betting very, very difficult, because fighters, they are athletic alpha beasts who are constantly trying to improve, constantly trying to improve their weaknesses, and it you cannot really research that. So... That's what makes pre-fight betting very difficult, because you can spend a lot of time studying footage on both guys, but then on any given night one guy can show up with a completely new set of skills we've never seen before which completely changes the outcome. I mean remember a few weeks back I gave everyone homework to go and research the Sergio Moraes versus Wally Alves fight after the fact because Wally Alves showed up and destroyed Sergio Moraes with leg kicks it was a brand new skill that he showed up and used and we'd never seen him use leg kicks before so that completely changed the outcome of the fight so Sergio Moraes wasn't a bad bet in that fight, but if you were betting him, you never could have known that Wally Alves was going to show up with leg kicks. So I want to go through some of these fights now, because so many of these fights showed fighters making massive improvements that we had never seen from them before. And if you are balls deep in MMA, and if you really, really want to take betting on MMA seriously you know, we've got a two-week break now between this, uh, where we are today, on Tuesday the 11th of June, and when UFC on ESPN Plus 12 takes place, so I really think it would be valuable for you to go and watch these fights again, and then kind of do research after the fact, to see that, the, the to, to basically see that, the performances that we got from some of these fighters were completely different from the performance we we got in the past and in the future that will help you to rationalize that it's very difficult to be super confident in any fighter in MMA simply because at any given time their opponent could show up and display new skills or put in a performance we've never seen from them before and by going and doing that homework, by watching these fights. And then going back and kind of researching it after the fact, you'll be able to compare how they looked at UFC 238 and how you probably could have expected them to look based on their past performances and how different that was. You can kind of like measure the difference between that. And I think that'll be very, very valuable for you. So, some of the things that I, some of the fights you should go take a look at, some of the things for you to look out for. So, Joanna Calderwood, the first thing that you notice is she had. Very powerful takedowns we've never seen from him, her before, and decent top control. What we saw from Caitlin Chukajan was that she was much more aggressive than usual, had much more success with her boxing, and when she actually stood in kickboxing range against Calderwood, she had a lot of success. Now, in this fight between Bevon Lewis and Darren Stewart, I mean... It was just like watching a different fighter. Like Dar- I feel bad for Bevon Lewis. And I feel really bad for anyone to bet on Bevon Lewis. I was so close to betting on Bevon Lewis that-, that last week. I was like this close. And it was a very reluctant pass, but I don't think he was a bad bet. And I feel really sorry for anyone that bet him because Darren Stewart showed up and looked like a completely different fighter. It actually emerged on weigh-in day that this was the first fight where Darren Stewart was a pro fighter uh, that could dedicate himself full-time to training. In all of Darren Stewart's past UFC fights, he was trying to hold down a full-time job as well. And I mean it showed because now that he's focused full-time on training mma he was just completely different if you go back and watch any of darren stewart's past fights against edmund shabajian or charles bird you know really any of them you'll see that he basically had no takedown defense and a very low level ground game and yet against b von lewis his takedown defense looked excellent showed very strong hips good technique good balance and that really threw b von lewis off you know b von lewis is a young fighter He suffered a a KO loss in his UFC debut. So he tried to perform smart on this card. He really did. He came out and he... He, he didn't like Darren Stewart's power. He felt Darren Stewart's power and didn't like it. So he tried to get the fight to the ground. Got in really deep on a few very, very deep takedowns that easily would have put Darren Stewart on his back in the past. But Stewart was able to step them. So definitely go and check out Stewart's, the difference between Stewart's takedown defense in the past and then against Bevon Lewis. Um, the next one, wow. I mean, this was another another massive improvement. So I feel really, really bad for Carol. Karolina Kavalkiewicz, she's had some really bad luck over the last couple of years, she obviously suffered a brutal KO loss to Jessica Andrade, then Michelle Waterson had looked quite poor over the last uh, few years, her cardio wasn't that great, she wasn't that explosive, and then for whatever reason when she fought Karolina, her cardio was on point, she looked strong, powerful, explosive and fast, so Karolina basically ran into the best version of Michelle Waterson we'd ever seen, And then again against Alexa Grasso if you go back and watch Alexa Grasso's fights since she came into the UFC you'll see her lack power in her strikes not that good at fighting backwards quite easy to push her up against the cage and get her to back up and look timid and nervous Um, you know not that fast not that powerful she also has displayed really bad striking defense in the past. But she was she'd been out injured for a year before this fight, and holy fuck balls! The version of Alexa Grasso that we got on Saturday night looked absolutely outstanding. Very good head movement, excellent footwork, like just a crisp, sharp, powerful snap in her punches. Much improved striking defense, much improved ability to fight going backwards. She just looked absolutely outstanding against Kovalkiewicz. It wasn't anything that Kovalkiewicz done bad. You know, Kovalkiewicz didn't perform badly. She just, two fights in a row now, has ran into fighters that have made massive improvements in Grasso and Waterson. So definitely go back and check uh, Alexa Grasso. How she looked before UFC 238 and how she looked during to UFC 238. Then another one, I mean, Algermaine Sterling, what the hell, man? He fucking looked amazing. I mean, if you would have told me last week that Algermaine Sterling would outbox Pedro Munoz, I would have literally, if someone in the comments would have typed, hey, uh, Allsop, um Algermaine's gonna outbox Munoz. Uh, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, I would have made fun of them, I probably would have drawn attention to them in the video and called them a noob, I would have told them they had no idea what they were talking about and I would have said something along the lines of there's no way that Algermaine Sterling would ever outbox Pedro Munoz and then what does he do on Saturday night comes out and basically boxes Pedro Munoz's face off with again the best performance we've ever seen from Sterling and he looked absolutely outstanding so again if you want to see why betting on mma is so difficult go and watch sterling against munoz and then go and watch how average his boxing looked against jimmy rivera brett johns and basically anyone else that he's ever fought and uh i mean let's leave it there we've already talked about i'm not going to say ferguson improved i'm just going to say ferguson fought with a different style which was very effective uh, against cerrone Obviously, Shevchenko fucking looked amazing. I would say Shevchenko improved as well, like those powerful uh, body lock takedowns and, and the way she set up that head kick. I mean, she I, I don't know if she's improved or she just looks much better at flyweight, but something's going on with her because she looked amazing against Joanna Jacek, and she looked amazing against Jessica I as well. And I mean, fucking hell, you want to talk about fighter improvements, I'm not going to go into it again, but Henry Cejudo, man, he is a nightmare. I don't see anyone beating Cejudo for a very, very long time at bantamweight. Can't think of anyone. So that's it. Now, let's stop looking at the past. Go into the future. But I do recommend if you are interested in becoming a student of the game, uh, learning about about betting. I think if you UFC 238 was such a good event to do homework like that on because it will help you appreciate that you can never feel confident in a fighter, because their opponent could always show up with a new box of tricks, you can't, uh, you basically can't, can't account for which makes capping fights kind of a weird art instead of a science you can never be too specific with it which is why it is also the reason why you know when I'm giving out my uh, my what, how I uh, cap a fight you know when I say I give a, cer- a certain fighters say 60 or 70 percent chance to win that's why I always like to get a big margin over the implied probability because I know things could happen that I can't account for in my research, like improvements that you can't measure is basically the point I'm trying to make. So if you have a marginal edge on the betting site, Uh, you could get yourself into trouble because you can never cap a fight 100% accurately because things will happen that you can't account for such as Alexa Grasso turning up and putting in the performances of her life such as Darren Stewart improving his takedown defense by a million percent in like the last three months so yeah if you if you're into picks and stuff Um, I'm sorry that this video is probably boring you, but if you really are dedicated to making money betting on MMA, I think that would be a really useful little experiment for you, you guys to do over the next two weeks. So now let's get into the first fight that I want to talk about in today's video, which is going to be Anderson Dos Santos against Andre Ewell. Now, this is kind of be this is kind of a striker versus grappler matchup. Although Anderson Dos Santos does dabble in striking, he's got a Muay Thai and BJJ base, but he's definitely a better grappler than a striker, and I feel like the smartest thing that he could do in this fight were to try and take this fight to the ground because I do think he's second best if the fight stays standing. Um what I would say about his striking is that he's not that dangerous, not that technical. He's very tough, he's got a great chin, but he's just not, um, doesn't really have too much power in his hands. Not really someone you'd worry too much about against a, a, a technical striker like Andre Ewell that likes to fight long, uh, very good footwork, very fast, very sharp. I think that Andre Ewell will uh be quite comfortable if this fight stays standing he's not gonna have it all his own way you know anderson's not a total anderson dos santos isn't totally outmatched if it stays standing but andre ewell's definitely got the advantage if it stays standing now on Anderson's dos santos biggest strength is that he's a very very strong wrestler and i want to show you a bit of that in his last fight against uh or not his last fight sorry his last fight before he came into the ufc from back in November against Alejandro Kitano from Thunder Fight 17. So what's actually strange about uh, about this performance is that Anderson Dos Santos fights with a very smart game plan in this fight, the fight immediately before he got into the UFC, but then didn't really use any of the skills on display in This fight, when he made his debut against Nad Naramani, now that's possible because he did his homework on Naramani, realized Naramani was a strong wrestler, and just didn't want to waste energy and burn himself out trying to take a guy down that was difficult to take down and hold down. But I just thought it's very interesting because my only memory of Anderson's Dos Santos when I began researching this fight was that he was, you know, a tough, uh, a tough. A uh, scrappy muay thai based fighter with a granite chin and decent cardio that's kind of what i had in my head and then i was surprised when i went and watched some of his fights on the regional circuit in brazil to see that he's actually a very very strong grappler and that is his bread and butter that's his main strength so let's kick this off now because i just want to show you a little bit of what the santos brings to the table so DeSantos santos is the guy with the mohawk in the black and yellow shirt. a bit of wiz khalifa going on he's got the wiz khalifa shorts Black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow. This video will probably get copyright strike now because obviously my cover my uh, sounds exactly like Wiz Khalifa there. But we've got Dos Santos here very early on in the first round. And as you can see, it won't take him long to try and test his opponent's takedown, defence and ground game. So very, very shortly, you are going to see dos Santos drive into his opponent and look to get this fight to the ground so here he comes forward now uses uh uses some strikes to set up the takedown entry as you can see oh actually I better stop skipping this a long video don't want to miss our point i think it's about here but you can see him come forward you know with a short right punch but the punch really is just to get his opponent thinking about his hands because obviously when dos Santos is rushing forward like that in a straight line his intention is to take his opponent down. So he rushes forward in a straight line, throws a short right punch to get his opponent thinking about defending the strike. So his opponent will raise his hands to block the punch and that will enable the Santos to then duck and get deep in on his hips and his opponent won't be able to get under hooks in play early because his hands are up here defending the punches and you've got the santos down on his hips trying to secure his hands together for a takedown and that's what we see unfold here so very nice setup and takedown entry from Dos santos and as we can see got his hands connected around his opponent's waist easily completed that double leg takedown and then from there dos santos has a lot of success uh, controlling his opponent from top position moves from mount to side control to half guard and pretty much toys with his opponent from this position and that's the first thing I guess I'd want to point out here is that Dos Santos is a strong offensive wrestler and when on the ground he also has a very very heavy top game now his uh, the referee here bailed his opponent out by forcing a stand up and now we get to just see a little bit of his striking so we can see you know Dos Santos stands very heavy on his lead leg which means he will be susceptible to leg kicks especially against taller longer opponents and he also doesn't have the best striking defense like I say he's primarily a grappler so he does tend to eat quite a lot of big shots and for a bantamweight He's also quite slow when it comes to striking as well, which could be a significant factor here because Ewell, as you can see, we'll, we may as well bring it up, Ewell's five foot eleven with a 75-inch reach and Dos Santos is 5'7 with a 70-inch reach. So Ewell has got a big size and reach advantage and if you're looking at Dos Santos here with how easy he is to hit and how slow he is, Ewell should be able to use that size, use that significant 5-inch reach advantage. To just chip away at Dos Santos and land on Dos Santos from positions and angles where Dos Santos cannot counter because he's not technical enough, he's not fast enough and quite quite honestly his arms aren't long enough. Here we can see again Dos Santos eating some big shots here circling away but Dos Santos just generally looking pretty vulnerable in the striking and this is pretty much the same thing we saw from him uh, in his UFC debut against Nat Naramani, but managed to fire back with a big shot there knocking his opponent down and jumping straight into his guard so now we want to go into the beginning of the second round uh, which should be here and what I really like about Dos Santos like I say he didn't use his wrestling at all in, uh, in his UFC debut against N- Naramani but that could actually be a sign of good fight IQ because Naramani's a strong wrestler and it might be an indication that that Dos Santos had done his homework on Naramani and just like I say thought I'm not going to burn loads of energy trying to take this guy down because he's difficult to take down I'm taking the fight on short notice what's the point let's just try and see if I can land the bomb and win a kickboxing match but what I really like about this fight is it's clear that Dos Santos isn't the best striker So he doesn't waste any time at the beginning of the first round or the beginning of the second round. He fights to his strength. Uh, fights to his strengths and quickly looks to take his opponent down where he has the advantage and as we can see here we're now in round two again he's backing up looking very vulnerable when it comes to striking but the first opportunity when his opponent gets overly aggressive and throws that flying knee he uses that as an opportunity to again change levels and initially went for a single leg but has now transitioned to a double leg takedown here again he's got his hands connected together deep around his opponent's hips and very difficult to stuff this kind of takedown. In fact, his opponent kind of realises here that he's not going to be able to get underhooks in play because Dos Santos's grip is too tight around the body. So instead he jumps guard on a guillotine. But not going to be easy to uh, to catch someone like Dos Santos in a guillotine who's very, very technical on the ground. High-level Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt and also very, very tough. And Dos Santos is just going to stay calm in this position. Let his opponent burn his arms out. And it's only going to be a matter of time before Dos Santos escapes this guillotine. There you can see a lot of space starting to be created here already. And the grip will get looser and looser until eventually Dos Santos can pop his head out. And then again, we see a little bit of Dos Santos' heavy top game beating his opponent up on the bottom. But he did get reversed there, we'll see in just a few seconds. The mistake he makes here, he's just chipping away at his opponent with ground and pound instead of focusing on position. And then as the sequence develops. And again, in these positions here where he's eating big elbows, big power punches... Not good at all and it was quite clear that he was hurt there which meant he jumped in on a desperation single leg attempt and uh, and had to retreat when he didn't have the drive to get through it. So just in that sequence there again you're seeing Dos Santos does not have the best uh, striking defence but what he does have is a high level ground game so as soon as they were back up on their feet here. Doesn't take long for De Santos to get this fight to the ground again. So what's interesting here is his opponent's choosing to fight fire with fire. Despite having a big advantage when it comes to striking, he's actually working for his own takedowns here. Perhaps he doesn't feel confident in his own takedown defence, but as he shoots in on his own takedown there, De Santos does a great job of sprawling out of it. And as he moves to take the back, his opponent realises the threat. So just deserve, just decides to roll to his back instead of giving his back up. Would prefer to go back to uh, his back rather than risk giving up a position where he could possibly be controlled from back or give up a rear naked choke or even you know if he was if he would have forced to roll to his front might even have been forced to go belly down or give up mount there. So um, his opponent fighting safe there um, by rolling to his back, but it enabled Dos Santos to end the fight inside or end the round inside control and uh, and possibly steal the round despite that knockdown. And then into the third round here. Again, Dos Santos eating big shots, standing up. Uh, so decides to try and get this fight back down as as quickly as possible. So I just want to show you that, just because if you have, um, if you were betting on this fight based on Dos Santos's performance against Nad Narimani, you might not and you not might not realize what you're getting from him. And in in actual fact, he is a pretty strong grappler with a nice heavy top game very good takedown entries very strong wrestling and that's significant here because and andre ewell uh, what I would say about Ewell is he reminds me of Curtis Melender a little bit. You know, he's quite tall for the division. Nothing crazy, but five foot eleven uh, for a bantamweight is is pretty fucking tall. Um, and just like a lot of guys which have got you know which are abnormally tall for their division, he doesn't have the best takedown defense. It's not bad, but it's not bulletproof either. What you'll notice from Ewell, exactly like Curtis Melender, is when his opponents shoot in on him. He's very, very difficult to take down initially. He does everything right. He fights for underhooks early, he creates a wide base, he's got reasonably good balance. So when his opponent first shoots the initial takedown attempt, he's very, very good at shutting them down. However, if you chain into a different kind of takedown attempt, so say you shoot a single, he stuffs it, you then move the double, he stuffs it. If you were then to transition into maybe a body lock takedown, or you were to you know go to doing some work in the clinch and then focusing on changing levels again and switching things up if you do switch things up and chain wrestle it tends to be quite easy to get you all down now that's in an, an intri- interesting point about this fight because we haven't re- I haven't personally seen too much chain wrestling from Anderson Dos Santos. what he tends to do is commit everything to one takedown technique and then if he doesn't get that technique he tends to retreat and we saw that when he was rocked in that second round of the footage I just showed you where he was hurt with those elbows standing shot a takedown didn't get it and then rolled to his back as opposed to you know I hate to use high level examples because you know they are unicorn fighters but they're very good examples of of what you should be looking for because they're fighters that everyone's familiar with if we think of like a Tatiana Suarez or Khabib Nurmagomedov they never waste too much time or energy pursuing one takedown technique they will abandon techniques very quickly and chain into something else which confuses their opponent if they aren't able to read what's going on uh, because you know you can kind of bait them into making mistakes and uh, and that's what That's the reason why guys like Curtis Melender and Andre Ewell have such bad takedown defense. They've got the initial takedown defense locked down, but they don't have that grappling awareness to move with their opponent and defend chained takedown attempts. So this fight is interesting because Ewell has the advantage striking, as you've just seen. Dos is very hittable. Um, But what I would say about Ewell is even though his initial takedown defense is very good, when he does give up takedowns, he's incredibly weak off his back, just like Curtis Melenda, He's one of these guys that just can't seem to work his way back to his feet, doesn't seem to know how to work his way back to his feet, which means if Anderson Dos Santos does get a takedown, he's likely to be able to maintain the takedown for a very long period of time because he's got a heavy top game and you all can't work his way back up. Now, with uh, what I would also say about that is... One thing you'll notice if you watch Ewell and something that drives me crazy is that I always use like the Team Alpha male fighters as as, as a good example because if you watch Team Alpha male fighters, when they get taken down they never let their shoulders go flat on the canvas, they always try and immediately pop back to their feet for their opponent has an opportunity to flatten their shoulders out and establish a dominant position. Andre Ewell does the complete opposite thing, the the thing you shouldn't do, in that when he gets taken down, instead of trying to immediately pop back up and prevent his opponent from establishing a dominant position he actually makes it easier for his opponent. He's so worried about his opponent advancing to half guard or mount or side control that he will himself put his shoulders flat on the canvas and initiate full guard and accept being on the bottom which isn't which isn't so bad if you know how to work your way back to your feet but it's very bad if you're like you all who doesn't know how to work their way back to their feet because it just results in him spending three four five minutes on the ground uh in full guard basically losing rounds so that is uh That is basically this fight in a nutshell, very difficult to predict. If we look at the odds at the moment, we've got Anderson Dos Santos as the underdog. Odds around 2.10, which is plus 110, for an implied probability of 48%. And then Andre Ewell at 1.77, which is minus 130, for an implied probability of 57%. And I've just really got no interest in betting this fight, because the way I see it is Andre Ewell... Has an advantage standing, but he's easy to take down if you chain your takedowns together and very, very weak off his back. Of course, the problem is, even though Anderson dos Santos is a strong wrestler, he's more of a single-shot wrestler. We haven't seen him chain that many takedowns together, which means Andre Ewell's initial very, very solid takedown defense might be enough for him to keep this fight standing. He's also got a significant size and reach advantage, and with Anderson dos Santos having poor striking defense, um, with a susceptibility to getting rock dropped or wobbled quite a lot. He was actually knocked out um, you know, back back last year in uh, KOTC against Victor Henry. And KOTC tends to be a very, very low level of opponent in KOTC. So Anderson Dos Santos is risky because of how, excuse me, because of how hittable he is. Andre Ewell is risky because how weak he is off his back. So an easy pass for me. And I guess another thing that I could say about this fight to illustrate the point of needing additional value where I was saying I like to get a good margin over the bookie in case anything unpredictable happens we may not be able to account for say I felt Anderson dos Santos was a good bet because, you know, he's an underdog uh, underdog odds, he is a strong wrestler, he is heavy from top position, Ewell's takedown defence isn't the best, it's likely Dos Santos will be able to get Andre Ewell down at some point. I'd need a, a, a better margin than what we've got, I'd need a decent margin to bet someone like Dos Santos, simply because... It's quite obvious that Andre Ewell needs to improve his takedown defense. He's only 31 years old. He's in his prime. He's going to be making big improvements from fight to fight. And who knows, he might pull a Darren Stewart on Saturday night and show up with vastly improved takedown defense. And if Andre Ewell does significantly improve his takedown defense, Dos Santos doesn't really have a path to victory because I believe Ewell's got the skills to light him up standing. So that's why this this fight's a tricky one for betting. There's a lot of... uh, A lot of uncertainty the odds aren't particularly great on either guy can't feel confident on either guy so it's an easy pass for me now we go on to the next fight which is going to be the very lovely Ashley Yoda one of the hottest girls one of the most underrated hottest girls in the UFC strawweight division she's absolutely beautiful and for whatever reason uh, the UFC media hype machine they love to promote hot fighters they don't seem to give her a push Uh, which is strange, because I think she is an absolute smoke show, but she is fighting the equally lovely Suri Kondo, um, in a fight that is quite disappointing after after my research, Yoda was one of the first names that jumped out at me, because my, you know, Kondo is one of those, you know, really tough, gritty Asian girls, you know, one of those tough, gritty Asian female fighters that has great cardio she's very tough she's got a great chin but very one-dimensional uh, just one of the there's a lot of these a- 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 Asian fighters floating around in the UFC at the moment you know we saw Yaun and Yan last weekend uh, there's Chan Mi jion which has got a similar fighting style and they kind of just plod forward and just look to box their opponent up but They don't do a particularly good job of putting their stamp on rounds, they don't throw a particularly high volume of strikes, and they really lack urgency if it's clear that they're behind in a fight, or they may not have won a round beyond all reasonable doubt, and what I also... my criticism of this style of fighter is that they don't really have a plan b either so they are very frustrating they are a formidable challenge for pretty much any female in the world because like i say they do have cardio to fight at a high pace for three rounds they are very tough they have got a great chin which means they will test you for 15 minutes and they're reasonably skilled everywhere so it's not like you can outclass them in any area but at the same time, they're tough to bet on just because they won't go epic here. They won't. They don't understand the importance of putting your stamp on, on a round, which means their fights always tend to be visually close, which makes it dangerous to bet on them. And that's the reason why Ashley Yoda was one of the first names that jumped out at me, because her kickboxing's vastly improved. She's a strong wrestler with a high-level ground game. But after researching this fight, I just don't like her as much as i thought i would similar for the reasons why i decided to pass on angela hill yaun and yan last week it was a reluctant pass but it's just one of those fights where the only criticism that i've really the only two criticisms that i've really got of yoda is that she is too happy to roll to her back and fight off her back from time to time and nine times out of ten being on your back is a losing position in mma even though yoda is very dangerous off her back and has an active guard i still don't like to bet on fighters who are happy to pull guard and fight off their back it annoys me um and i also yoda is making massive improvements to her cardio but there are definitely still improvements to make i don't fully trust her cardio so when you're fighting against someone like Kondo, there's reasonably good at everywhere. It's going to march forward, try and outbox you. Tough, decent chin, cardio for days. I just, It's a tough matchup for anyone. And I don't think Yoda is a solid enough fighter, an intelligent enough fighter to trust her against someone like K- Yoda, uh, Kondo. Because if she just decides to pull guard and give up a round with Kondo on top of her, or if she doesn't push the pace, and allows condo the box rep then she could lose a decision i mean if we look at the odds at the moment they're currently around about dead even both girls at 1.91 which is minus 110 for an implied probability of 52 percent i do slightly favor yoda here i do but i just have no interest in betting her absolutely no interest the the best way to make money in this game is to be tight and only put your money in strong positions. I keep preaching that. You know, even when we take losses, I am uh, I will fucking nail my flag in the ground and stand by those losses and have conviction in my decisions and look dead in the camera and tell you a loss still the a loss a loss even though we took a loss we still had our money in strong positions and I know that if I bet on either girl in this fight my money wouldn't be in a strong position so I recommend passing. So now we go on to the next fight that I want to talk about in today's video which is going to be the main event between Korean Zombie and Renato Moicano and straight off the bat I have been alright, I've been quite happy, quite positive in this video, I've, I've quite enjoyed doing this video, we've gotten into some deep topics, I love talking about, you know, deep betting, betting talk and betting, uh, betting analysis and stuff, I know a lot of you enjoy listening to that, but I might get grumpy when I'm talking about this fight, because Salty also Salty also is, um, I am salty, I'm fucking salty man, I'm salty, I'm annoyed, I'm angry, I'm pissed, I'm not going to lie, I'm fucking pissed. Um, because I'm just not happy guys what what can I say so I researched this fight last week I'm always I'm a busy guy I'm a really really busy guy it's hard for me to put in the words how busy I am so last week when I was researching Calvin Cater versus Ricardo Lamas I thought you know what I will do I will research Calvin Cater versus Ricardo Lamas And then straight after, I'll research Renato Moicano against Korean Zombie. Because it was coming up a week later. And it meant I had to watch the Kata fight versus Moicano anyway. So I was like, you know, if I wait till next week... To, watch, uh, to research Moicano versus Korean Zombie. I'll only have to go back and watch the Cater fight anyway, so it's fresh in my memory. I may as well research both fights now and save myself a little bit of time because I'll be watching Kato Moicano anyway. And after researching Korean Zombie versus Renato Moicano last week... Um, I thought Moicano was a great bet. I'll be perfectly honest. I couldn't wait to pull the trigger on Moicano. And on all the European betting websites that that had odds last week, Moicano was a 1.70 favourite, which is minus 143 for an implied probability of 59%. Those odds were bloody lovely. When I saw Moicano was a 1.70 favourite, I was all over it. I was planning to bet him. I was already, you know planning this breakdown in my head what I was going to say and all the reasons why I thought Renato Moicano was a great bet and also I thought that it was a really really solid bet as well I would put Moicano into the category of Calvin Keita over Ricardo Lamas where you could see from the, the stakes, the stake sizes, you know, we only bet small on Cerrone because we knew he was risky. We only put a relatively small bet on Mirai's because we knew he was risky. We fired off a big bet on Keita because we knew something crazy would have to happen in order for Keita to lose. And that's kind of how I feel about Moicano. I really feel, feel that this is a very good stylistic matchup for him. And unless something crazy happens, he's going to beat Korean Zombie. The fucking problem is since his odds were released like two weeks ago, they've been absolutely smashed by casual bettors that fucking hammer the opening lines and destroy them from everyone else when the opening max bet limits are like $100 to $250. So it's really, really annoying. And I've gotta be honest, Sometimes I can kind of spot this is going to happen and it doesn't bother me. Sometimes, like, I don't even take opening odds seriously because they're obviously going to get smashed and exploited um, by people with smaller bankrolls that don't worry about max bet limits. It's just part of the game. Like, these odds now... These odds don't even exist to me. None of the odds on these events you know, coming up in the next few months even exist because I know they're going to get absolutely smashed. I know they're not real. I know I can't take them seriously because they're going to change so much because at the moment, the max bet limits are so low and liquidity is so bad. But last week when I saw Moicano <clears throat> it was one70 i was like oh that's cool you know that fight's like coming up next week the odds aren't going to change that much and then he got absolutely smashed as you can see the chart uh he was 1.83 which was uh minus 120 he's now been bet down to 1.44 which is minus 227 for an implied probability of 69 percent and the irony here is god damn it i mean look i can compare it to cater it's a similar bet to cater in every way um so if we look at my bet on Kater from uh, last week, if we scroll down to the breakdown, you can see here that I bet him bet three units on him at odds of 1.70, which is minus 43, uh, minus 143, because the odds of 1.70 give an implied probability of 59%. Uh, I personally gave Keita around a 70% chance of winning, which meant that we had an 11% margin over the bookie on this bet. A very, very nice margin, and he came through for us in a big way. Now, the problem with this fight is I feel just as confident in Moikano beating Korean Zombie as I did in Keita beating uh, Ricardo Lamas. Problem is, you have to let the odds do the work for you. The odds can help you make the right decision and the odds here are telling us to pass. Because if we take a look at it, our odds of 1.70 with a 59% implied probability, if we cap a fighter at 70%, we have an 11% margin over the bookie. So if we're capping Moikano at 70% here, the problem with his current odds are around 1.44 is that gives us an implied probability of 69%, which means these current odds are one almost 100% accurate on the button. So it's very fucking annoying. There's no betting opportunity here. It really hurts me to say that. I want to bet Moicano. It is such a reluctant pass. But mathematically, it's just not a good bet because you don't have any edge on the bookie at these odds, which is fucking infuriating. I mean, to get any value on Moicano here at all, you have to cap him at 75% or better. And for me, that's just not not possible. I mean, it's just, I can't do it can't fucking do it can't get to 75% I think he wins but 75% is too much of a stretch so I mean even though I've been quite upfront with you I think it's a pass at these current odds we live in hope there are a lot of dumb people out there that don't understand MMA we tend to see a lot of odds movement on fight day and I'm just praying that the odds improve on Moicano um you know, if they improved up to, I mean, what's the what's the bare minimum I would pull the trigger on? If they improved to, yeah, if they improved to 1.56 for money line odds of minus 179 for implied probability of 64%, I would pull the trigger at that point just because that would give us a... Uh, f- actually I'd go up to 1.55 which would be minus 182 for an implied probability at 65% So that would give us a 5% margin on the bookies I would take that so if it improved to 1.55 I would hit it if it stays at 1.44 anywhere around there it is a pass so I may as well at this point I know I've done this breakdown completely ass backwards but I may as well now explain why I feel so confident in my so and again you might actually you might be wondering why I just didn't bet him last week so to answer your question just to get that out of the way basically the when odds first get released or when odds on an MMA fight are published quite far in advance in advance of when an event is scheduled to take place the liquidity on that what is called a betting line which is that market is very low so for example Chanson Junkery and Zombie against Renato Moicano, that is a betting line okay and there is a maximum bet limit on each either fighter which means the maximum amount that you can bet now when you're really far away from an event so for example Khabib versus Poirier in September the what's called liquidity on this fight because it's so far away will be very 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 low which means you won't be able to bet much money on it without the odds getting destroyed and a lot of the time the max bet limits will be very low anyway so for example if you went on to five dimes right now uh, and you tried to bet on Poirier or Nurmagomedov I don't know this 100%, it's quite a high-profile fight, so maybe it's a little bit different. But as a guess, the maximum you would be able to bet on either one of these guys would be between $100 and $500. And every time you bet between $100 and $500, usually it's $250 in the middle. But every time you reach that max bet limit, the odds would decline on whichever fighter you chose to bet. Because the way liquidity works is a certain amount of money gets bet on either fighter and the betting site has to basically balance out each amount of money to 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 basically ensure that there is a there, there's a margin for them so that there's a slight percent margin in there neither values add up exactly to 100% so no matter who wins the fight they still make a margin of money they take like it's almost like a commission but not quite so the problem is I couldn't bet Mycano last week when I researched the fight because liquidity was still very low. There wasn't the max bet limits were very low, and with me managing my community, I do take ethics very, very seriously. I've got about a hundred members, or actually, I've got about a hundred and fifty members now on my website. And if there is a a bet in line like this with low liquidity, and I send a betting tip out to all my members. If all 150 of my members try and place the same bet at the same time in a low-liquidity market, in a low-liquidity betting line, the odds will get absolutely steamed and murdered and decline very, very fast, which means a large number of my members won't be able to place the bet because the odds will change too fast. Some of my members bet professionally, some of my members have very, very big bankrolls, so even one person would be enough to crush the odds. And that is why you see very rapid line movement on this fight. If you notice, it's gone from one83 uh this was like three weeks ago it's gone from 1.83 three weeks ago down to 1.44 and the reason why it has moved so fast is because liquidity was very low which means it didn't actually take much money to make the odds decline and that's how it works but who knows, we're a long time before the event, there's still two weeks to go, maybe a lot of money will come in on Korean Zombie, which would then in turn improve the odds on Renato Moicano, and like I say, at odds of around 1.55 or better, I would be looking to pull the trigger on Moicano. So now that's out the way, um, oh yeah, and the re- obviously the reason why I didn't bet Moicano myself, max bet limits were really low and I didn't want to destroy the odds for my members. So that is it. We now want to explain a little bit about the reasons why I am so confident in Moikano. So, the first reason is Korean Zombie is, you know, affectionately called Korean Zombie. He likes to call himself Korean Zombie because of his fighting style. He likes to march forward, walk his opponent down, uh, and really just box the map and try and pressure them so much that they have to get sucked into one of his crazy exchanges or crazy wars or crazy brawls and he basically bets on his cardio chin and toughness to come out on top in that type of a fight the problem when you're going up against someone like Renato Moicano is that they do not play that game Moicano won't have anything to do with that style what you'll see from Moicano is he'll just circle on the outside Use your forward pressure against you and just chip away at you. At no point will he play Korean Zombie's game of standing flat-footed in boxing range and getting into these crazy exchanges. Moikano just doesn't fight like that. What you'll see from Moicano, he will stay light on his feet, circle on the outside, and chip away at, at, at Korean Zombie. Zombie and also another 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 thing that makes this a really bad matchup for Korean Zombie is that when he comes forward he's quite slow, stands quite heavy on his lead leg and that opens him wide up to Mo- Moikano's vicious leg kicks so it, it's like Moikano doesn't even have to set himself in boxing range to land punches and power strikes on Korean Zombie. He can beat him up from the outside with his leg kicks. He's very good at landing leg kicks while moving backwards. And one of the things that makes Moikano's fighting style very, very good is that he's got the cardio to fight on the outside and use lots of footwork for as long as he needs to. You know, fighting on the outside is a very exhausting style of fighting. If you are going back and watching USC 238 to look at some of the things I was talking about, Angela Hill and also Aljamain Sterling are probably the best two examples I can think of on last week's card to illustrate this point. If you look at Angela Hill and Aljamain Sterling in round one, they're both very light on their feet and loads of footwork. But because it's exhausting to circle on the outside and counter-strike and use a lot of footwork, then into the second and third round, you see them become a lot more flat-footed and use a lot less footwork. And that is the problem that a lot of counter-strikers have. They're great early in a fight because they've got the energy to effectively circle on the outside and counter-strike, but as the fight goes on, they don't have the gas tank to keep that footwork up. And... Moikano does and that's what makes him so brilliant no matter how much pressure you put on him No matter how much you force him to fight on the back foot and circle on the outside He can do it all fucking night And that's what makes it a very difficult stylistic matchup for Korean zombie because Korean zombie is going to be Pressuring him and walking forward and try and bait him into one of these crazy Exchanges and Moikano's footwork is just too good He's just going to be able to circle on the outside and get out of there and Korean zombie isn't going to be able to get Anywhere near him another reason why i do like moicano here is because in uh, in korean zombies last fight around six or seven months ago against Yaya rodriguez he suffered an absolutely career-changing devastating knockout uh, this kind of uh, knockout can change a fighter forever it can uh, it can change the way their brain works their body functions it can affect their confidence levels it's a game changer i'm not going to say this knockout will affect uh, korean zombie because we never work in absolutes i'm just saying is a very high probability that it will exactly like um exactly like last week we spoke in depth about uh, tony ferguson's mental health issues and the problems he's had outside the cage we weren't at any point saying it will affect him what we were saying is what we were saying last week is it's a factor which could affect him and that is a distinction i want to make very clearly here again i'm not saying that the brutal ko loss to uh to yaya rodriguez will affect korean zombie i'm saying it might you know korean zombie has built a career on being ruthlessly aggressive, putting himself in the firing line, coming forward with a reckless abandon, and forcing and initiating crazy exchanges with his opponent. Will he be able to do that now that he's been absolutely flatlined? Psychologically, taking that amount of damage and suffering a bad KO like that can really do something to you, and it may alter Korean Zombie's fighting style forever. The best two recent examples I can think of of this were Jimmy Rivera against Algermaine Sterling. After Jimmy Rivera was brutally KO'd against Marlon Moraes, he looked nervous, hesitant and gun shy in the fight back from that against Algermaine Sterling. And an even better example was James Vick against Paul Felder. James Vick, uh, James Vick got absolutely flatlined against Justin Gaethje, brutal knockout. And then in the fight immediately following that, Against Paul Felder, he looked timid, nervous, tentative. Just had no confidence at all. Nowhere near his confidence, confident as he used to be. So it's just like I say, you know, Ferguson's mental health issues didn't affect him, but they may have. There's no way to know. On a different night, it might have played out differently. And exactly the same with his knockout. The knockout might not mean anything. Korean Zombie could come up looking like exactly could could come out on Saturday looking like he always does. But it's just something to bear. excuse me just something to bear in mind so I think that is pretty much it for this video at the moment Moicano is a very reluctant pass but we will keep an eye on the odds and hopefully they move in our favor now I think I'm about to choke so let's call it there for the day I've been talking for long enough please if you want me to do the live stream video on fight day where I try and find a prop for every single one of these fights then you know what to do smash the like button below And if every video that I promote for this event gets 300 likes I will do that live stream and as of course as always in that live stream I'll answer all your questions from the live chat but the video has got to get 300 likes guys so please help it get there I hope you enjoyed today's video it was a long one we talked about a lot of stuff but like I always say picking fights is not hard anyone can pick winners to make money in this game you've got to have all the other shit to back it up you've got to have the correct mentality the correct discipline the ability to manage your money and that is really as important as making correct picks like i always say if you take an mma expert like Faraz Sahabi, and then you take you know a gambling expert like Daniel Negrano, and you get them to bet on MMA for a year, I guarantee someone like that, Daniel Negrano would outperform Farasa Habi. So that's why in these videos, I'm not here to just give picks and talk about fights. This is Diary of a Pro Gambler. And if you want to make money in this game, I must preach to you that all the stuff involving money and psychology and mentality and strategy is more important than knowing a lot about MMA and picking winners. I promise you that. I absolutely promise you that. So I'm going to talk about both sets of information on these videos equally because they're both equally important. If anything, the strategy, mentality, psychology, bankroll management is more important. So that is it for this video, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. Take care. Smash the like button. You better fucking subscribe as well. And I'll see you very soon with part two.